0: Chapter 4. The Pandemic Template, AIDS and AZT Doctors need three qualifications. To be able to lie and not get caught, to pretend to be honest, and to cause death without remorse. Jean Frassard, 1337-1405 to 1405. The AZT approval process was a shakedown cruise for Tony Fauci. As he ran AZT around the regulatory traps, Dr. Fauci pioneered and perfected the retinue of corrupt, deceitful, and bullying practices and strategies that he would replicate again and again over the next 33 years to transform NIAID into a drug development dynamo. When Dr. Fauci entered the principal investigator (PI) drug testing universe, only one pharmaceutical company, Burroughs Welcome, predecessor to GlaxoSmithKline, had a drug candidate teed up to test as an AIDS remedy: a toxic concoction, azidothymidine, known popularly as AZT. U.S. government-financed researchers developed AZT in 1964 as a leukemia chemotherapy. AZT is a DNA chain terminator, randomly destroying DNA synthesis in reproducing cells. AZT's developer, Jerome Horwitz, theorized that the molecule might inject itself into cells and interfere with tumor replication. FDA abandoned the toxic chemotherapy compound after it proved ineffective against cancer and breathtakingly lethal in mice. Government researchers deemed it too toxic, even for short-regimen cancer chemotherapy. Horowitz recounted that the drug's extreme toxicity made it so worthless that he didn't think it was worth patenting. Former Businessweek journalist Bruce Nussbaum recounted that Horwitz dumped it on the junk pile and didn't even keep the notebooks. Soon after NIH's team identified HIV as the probable cause of AIDS in 1983, Samuel Broder, head of the National Cancer Institute, NCI, another subagency of the NIH, launched a project to screen antiviral agents from around the world as potential treatments. In 1985, his team, along with colleagues at Duke University, found that AZT killed HIV in test tubes. NCI's study inspired Burroughs' welcome to retrieve AZT from Horwitz's scrap heap and patent it as an AIDS remedy. Recognizing financial opportunity in the desperate terror of young AIDS patients facing certain death, the drug company set the price at up to $10,000 a year per patient, making AZT one of the most expensive drugs in pharmaceutical history. Since Burroughs Welcome could manufacture AZT for pennies per dose, the company anticipated a bonanza. In order to justify these exorbitant prices for an existing drug, wrote Dr. Marcia Angel, the longtime editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, in her 2004 book The Truth About Drug Companies, the company claimed far more credit than it deserved. After Burroughs Welcomes, CEO sent a self-congratulatory letter to the New York Times, Rationalizing AZT's exorbitant sticker price with the standard pharma embroidery about the high risks and extravagant costs of early drug development, Broder and four colleagues from the NCI and Duke responded angrily, reciting the seminal contributions Burroughs' welcome did not make. The company specifically did not develop or provide the first application of the technology for determining whether a drug like AZT can suppress live AIDS virus in human cells, nor did it develop the technology to determine at what concentration such an effect might be achieved in humans. Moreover, it was not first to administer AZT to a human being with AIDS, nor did it perform the first clinical pharmacology studies in patients. It also did not perform the immunological and virological studies necessary to infer that the drug might work and was therefore worth pursuing in further studies. All of these were accomplished by the staff of the National Cancer Institute, working with staff at Duke University. The NCI scientists pointedly added, that the company's squeamishness about handling the HIV pathogens made it impossible for Burroughs Welcome to perform any meaningful research. Indeed, one of the key obstacles to the development of AZT was that Burroughs Welcome did not work with live AIDS virus nor wish to receive samples from AIDS patients. When Fauci appropriated the HIV program from the National Cancer Institute, NIAID inherited AZT, which was then further down the clinical trial path than any other drug. AZT proved to be an irresistible opportunity for Fauci. After all, Burroughs Welcome not only had a head start in the AIDS drug program, the company also had its own army of veteran principal investigators, PIs, with plenty of expertise at running the complex regulatory hurdles which Dr. Fauci had not yet mastered. Dr. Fauci needed a visible success to jumpstart his program and anoint his new regime with the patina of competence. Nussbaum described how the British pharmaceutical company manipulated its leverage over Dr. Fauci to gain monopoly control over the government's HIV response. Wellcome's PIs came to dominate NIAID's clinical trial system, They formed a web linking Welcome, the drug AZT, and the NIH. They came to sit on the Institute's key drug selection committee, and they voted on whether to give high or low priority to the testing of each anti-AIDS drug, including those that might possibly compete with AZT in the marketplace. The PIs were a power unto themselves. They were, in fact, out of control. Dr. Fauci would later mimic this successful model to populate key drug and vaccine approval committees in FDA, CDC, and at the Institute of Medicine, IOM, with his pharma PIs, giving him and his pharma partners complete, vertically integrated control over the drug approval process from molecule to market. But all did not go smoothly. Even with Burroughs' welcome holding the reins, Progress at NIAID was glacial. AZT's horrendous toxicity hobbled researchers struggling to design study protocols that would make it appear either safe or effective. With AZT devouring his bandwidth, Dr. Fauci failed to populate clinical trials for any competing drug. After three years and hundreds of millions spent, NIAID had not produced a single New approved treatment. Meanwhile, bustling networks of community-based AIDS doctors mushrooming in cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and Dallas had become specialists in treating the symptoms of AIDS. As Dr. Fauci swung for the fences, the miraculous new antiviral cure for AIDS, these community doctors were achieving promising results with off-label therapeutic drugs that seemed effective against the constellation of symptoms that actually killed and tormented people with AIDS. These included off-the-shelf remedies like ribavirin, alpha-interferon, DHPG, peptide D, and phoscarnate for retinal herpes, and Bactrim, SEPTRA, and aerosol pentamidine for AIDS-related pneumonias. Despite years of pleading by the HIV community, Dr. Fauci refused to test any of those repurposed drugs which had older or expired patents and no pharma patrons. One of the most promising of these street drugs was AL-721, an antiviral that was far less toxic than AZT. Two of Dr. Fauci's top scientists, Robert Gallo and Jeffrey Lawrence from NCI, had found AL-721 effective in reducing HIV viral loads. But, under pressure from his phalanx of Burroughs welcome PIs, Dr. Fauci refused to follow up. Big Pharma and its PIs were loath to test any drug with patents they didn't control. None of the big pharmaceutical companies were interested in cultivating rivals for their high-margin blockbusters like AZT. Dr. Fauci's failure to move these remedies through the NIAID system spawned a burgeoning sub-Rosa market where people with AIDS and community doctors purchased remedies from underground buyer's clubs. One of NCI's top virologists, Dr. Frank Rossetti, who worked directly under Robert Gallo, recalls of that era. We could have saved millions of lives with repurposed and therapeutic drugs, but there's no profit in it. It's all got to be about newly patented antivirals and their mischievous vaccines. The PIs made sure that Pharma's AZT was the only arrow in NIAID's clinical trial quiver. Because of Dr. Fauci's inexperience and perhaps deliberate sandbagging, He and his PIs had only managed to fill 5 to 10 percent of the slots in his clinical trials for other promising drugs that would compete with AZT. According to Nussbaum, in time, the clinical trials networks Fauci set up would come to be known as the HUD of the 90s. Money was spent, but trials went under-enrolled, drug treatments never seemed to emerge, and people with AIDS continued to get sick and die. At the mercy of Burroughs' welcome, Dr. Fauci cut the company PIs every courtesy to accelerate AZT's approval. FDA and NIH waived long-term primate studies that would be a high-risk gambit on a compound of such well-known toxicity. Dr. Fauci would take the same shortcut 36 years later to accelerate approvals of his pet drug Remdesivir and Moderna's coronavirus vaccine. Dr. Fauci endorsed Burroughs Welcome's scheme to price AZT at a sumptuous $10,000 per patient per year by agreeing to pay the top-shelf sticker price for the pills used in NIAID's clinical trials. According to Nussbaum, Tony Fauci's managerial incompetence, which put him utterly at the mercy of Burroughs Welcome and its AZT and AZT-only agenda, had exacted a staggering cost. By 1987, more than a million Americans were infected by the AIDS virus. Not a single drug treatment had come out of the government's enormous biomedical research system. Nussbaum chronicles the escalating frustration among AIDS activists who were winning vast congressional appropriations for NIAID with nothing to show. By 1988, Nussbaum recounts, several hundred million tax dollars had somehow disappeared into the nation's biomedical establishment, and not one new drug had been produced. Tony Fauci's incompetence was frustrating the national response to the pandemic. Where was Tony Fauci at this time, Nussbaum asks? Nowhere. He wasn't, after all, a details man. He was busy being a hit the front pages every day kind of guy. AIDS activists and public health officials were wondering, where did all the grant money go? Did NIAID keep the money? Who benefited? Certainly not the tens of thousands of people with AIDS who grew angrier and angrier with each wasted passing day. Activists complained that Dr. Fauci was not being forthcoming about the status and enrollment of his clinical trials. He was stonewalling inquiries and had veiled the entire process in secrecy. Despite pleas from patients, their doctors, and advocates, despite the vast financial windfalls flowing to his agency from the HIV community's adept lobbying, Dr. Fauci refused to meet with the AIDS community leadership during his first three years as America's AIDS czar. That reticence further soured Dr. Fauci's already difficult relationships with the community he was responsible to serve. It was a hard-wired reflex at NIAID to exaggerate public fears of pandemics, and Dr. Fauci's first instinct as National AIDS czar had been to stoke contagion terror. He made himself a villain among AIDS activists with a fear-mongering 1983 article in the Journal of the American Medical Association warning that AIDS could spread by casual contact. At the time, AIDS was almost exclusive to intravenous drug users and males who had sex with other males, but Dr. Fauci incorrectly warned of the possibility that routine close contact, as within a family household, can spread the disease. Given that non-sexual, blood transmission is possible, Fauci wrote, the scope of the syndrome may be enormous. In his History of the AIDS Crisis and the Band Played On, author Randy Schultz reports that the world's leading AIDS expert, Aryeh Rubinstein, was astounded at Fauci's stupidity because his statement did not reflect the contemporary scientific knowledge. The best scientific evidence suggested the infectivity of HIV, even in intimate contact, to be so negligible as to be incapable of sustaining a general epidemic. Nevertheless, Dr. Fauci's reflexive response was to amplify the widespread panic of dreaded pestilence that would naturally magnify his power, elevate his profile, and expand his influence. Amplifying Terror of Infectious Disease was already an ingrained knee-jerk institutional response at NIAID. In 1987, the Wall Street Journal won a Pulitzer Prize for its investigation of an HHS scheme, its writers characterized as a deliberate campaign by officials to misrepresent AIDS as a general pandemic to secure greater public funding and financial support. The flim-flam worked. Terror of pestilence, it turns out, is a potent impulse, and Fauci was adept at weaponizing it, and he quickly learned that other respected authorities would follow his lead. Following Dr. Fauci's fear-mongering prophecy, Teresa Crenshaw of the President's AIDS Commission made the astonishing forecast that within fourteen years, Double the number of people then on the planet would be dying from lethal infections. If the spread of AIDS continues at this rate, in 1996, there could be one billion people infected. Five years later, hypothetically, 10 billion. Crenshaw asked, Could we be facing the threat of extinction during our lifetime? Crenshaw's dire soothsaying never materialized. In 2007, WHO estimated only 33.2 million people worldwide were HIV positive. The HIV prevalence curves based on CDC's own data show that at least in the U.S., HIV has not spread at all since testing was first available, stubbornly remaining at the same levels relative to population. The Oprah Show broadcast Crenshaw's subsequent prognostication that by 1990, one in five heterosexuals may be dead of AIDS. Thankfully, this prognosis was also hyperbolic. According to CDC data, about one in 250 Americans tests HIV positive, and outside the risk groups, this number drops to about one in 5,000 about one one one-thousandth of Crenshaw's bodement. The hysteria following Fauci's dystopian prediction prompted Der Spiegel to warn that AIDS infections would entirely exterminate the German population by 1992. The following year, 1985, the magazine Bild der Wissenschaft also forecast the prompt extinction of the Teutonic race. A slightly less exuberant 1986 prophecy by Newsweek had 5 to 10 million Americans lethally infected by 1991. Newsweek's auguring was off by 10 times. U.S. authorities have since identified only 1 million HIV infections. Dr. Fauci's embellishments quickly made HIV positives the modern equivalent of lepers. Paranoia of AIDS from non-sexual contact persisted for years. In New York in 1985, for instance, 85% of schoolchildren at one public elementary school stayed home during opening week, while hundreds of parents demanded the school system bar any HIV-positive children from attending classes. The Reagan administration made it unlawful for persons with AIDS to enter the United States. The Cuban government quarantined AIDS victims in modern leper colonies. AIDS activists charged Dr. Fauci with causing the irrational, punitive response that followed his hysterical statements. A year later, growing furor over his assertion forced Dr. Fauci to acknowledge that health officials had never detected a case of the disease spread through casual contact. Finally, AIDS activists further complained that Dr. Fauci lacked sensitivity and human compassion toward people suffering from the disease. His laser focus on a single magic bullet antiviral left Dr. Fauci reluctant to study drugs that treated the constellations of grim infections that tortured and killed people with AIDS. Patient care, which typically involved off-the-shelf drugs, was incompatible with NIAID's mushrooming mercantile obsession with high-priced patented antivirals. Dr. Fauci's narrow focus on AZT over off-patent therapeutic medications prompted the AIDS plague's most vocal activist, Larry Kramer, to call Dr. Fauci a damned bungler and public enemy number one. Melissa Wallach and Craig Borton who received Oscar nominations for their script, Dallas Buyers Club, intensively researched NIAID's institutional hostility to patient care and repurposed drugs during the 1986 AIDS crisis. Dr. Fauci's campaign to sabotage therapeutic remedies played a key role in precipitating the emergence of the organized underground medical network, so-called Buyers' clubs filled the vacuum by providing treatments that community doctors and their patients considered effective against AIDS, but that FDA refused to approve. Dr. Fauci was a liar, recalls Wallach, who researched Dr. Fauci intensively for her film. He was utterly beholden to pharmaceutical companies and was hostile to any product that would compete with AZT. He was the real villain of this era. He cost a lot of people their lives. By 1987, thousands of AIDS activists from organizations like AMFAR and Act Up, many of them dressed in burial frocks, began mounting mass protests against Dr. Fauci at NIH's Bethesda, Maryland Research Complex and demanding that he, at last, meet with them, carrying signs that read, Red Tape Kills Us, and NIH, Negligence, Incompetence, and Horror. Protesters were met by a line of police officers in riot gear. The protesters objected to Dr. Fauci's narrow focus on welcome's single patented antiviral and wanted more attention for existing therapeutic drugs that seemed to reduce the worst of AIDS' most agonizing and deadly symptoms. As the clamoring crowds multiplied on NIH's expansive Bethesda campus, Congressman Henry Waxman intervened to force Dr. Fauci to finally sit down with activists in the spring of 1987. It was his first meeting with AIDS advocates since he became AIDS commissar three years earlier. The arrogance was simply part of NIH culture, wrote Nussbaum. No one thought that people with AIDS and their local doctors had anything to recommend in terms of their own treatment. The same was true of people with cancer. They were all patients or victims to be pitied and helped by white-coated scientist heroes. Larry Kramer, Nathan Kuladner, Dr. Barry Gingell, and singer-songwriter and pioneering AIDS activist Michael Callan Finally, took their seats across a broad table from Dr. Fauci and fifteen of his selected scientists from FDA and NIH. Throughout that meeting, the advocates found Dr. Fauci both manipulative and dismissive of their concerns. According to Nussbaum, these leaders had said time and again that NIAID was obsessed with AZT that most of the trials and people with AIDS involved in the trials were on just that one drug. They began by confronting Dr. Fauci with the fact that his own most trusted scientists, Dr. Lawrence and Dr. Gallo, had found AL-721 effective in reducing viral loads. Dr. Fauci responded with a barrage of misdirection and obfuscation. He cherry-picked a single assay from an obscure laboratory that had found AL-721 ineffective and refused to discuss or acknowledge the two studies by his own agency that supported its use. They next questioned him about his sandbagging on aerosol pentamidine. According to Nussbaum, dozens of community doctors and thousands of PWAs, people with AIDS, already knew that aerosol pentamidine prevented AIDS' most lethal symptom, pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, PCP. Doctors had also found early intervention with Bactrim and SEPTRA to be effective prophylaxis against PCP. The activists presented Dr. Fauci with a modest request, that NIAID agree to make guidelines for physicians who wanted to use Bactrim to treat people with AIDS preventively or even a statement supporting consideration of the use. An official declaration by NIH that doctors consider these treatments standard of care would require insurance companies to cover their costs, making them available to AIDS victims, many of whom were destitute. Dr. Fauci met both requests with refusal. He said he simply could not recommend a drug until he saw randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial results. That was the gold standard, he said. It would be that or nothing. When they asked him, why not, he shouted, there is no data. He told them that the treatment experiences and voluminous case study reports of dozens of community AIDS doctors was not real science. The activists were aware of this increasingly lethal irony. It had been NIAID's decision to not fund any randomized trials on these unpatented drugs. Dr. Fauci himself had constructed this dead end. This pattern of resourceful stonewalling to obstruct repurposed off-patent drugs with life-saving potential would become a pattern familiar to Dr. Fauci's critics during the COVID crisis. According to Callan, we asked him, no, we begged him to issue interim guidelines urging physicians to prophylax those patients deemed at high risk for PCP, pneumonia, with Bactrim or aerosol pentamidine. Although it would not have cost the government much to have done so, he steadfastly refused to issue such guidelines. His reason? No data. So the Catch-22 was complete, and many people died of PCP who didn't have to. When the activists asked Dr. Fauci to at least add AL721, peptide D, DHPG, and aerosolized pentamidine to his clinical trials, Dr. Fauci's refusal was loud. I can't do that, he shouted. I can't convene a consensus conference. The choice, he explained, of which compounds would enter NIAID's clinical trial pipeline was made not by public agreement, but by a panel of independent scientists. Dr. Fauci did not mention that virtually all the members of his independent panel were pharmaceutical PIs with ties to NIAID and Burroughs Welcome. Following that meeting, a group of frustrated community doctors raised money from their own AIDS patients to collect data for a randomized trial on Bactrim. It took them two years, and their results strongly supported Bactrim's effectiveness against pneumonia. AIDS activists lamented that two years of stalling by Fauci on aerosol pentamidine and Bactrim had cost 17,000 people their lives. Following the NIH parley, the fury of the AIDS patient advocates against Dr. Fauci mounted. In their view, the community doctors were generating plenty of good science. Those treatment experiences, often published, had as much validity as case studies upon which scientists routinely rely. As Nussbaum points out, there was plenty of data, if only Fauci and the rest of NIH were willing to look at real people in real communities instead of the endless bottoms of their test tubes. Michael Callen told Nussbaum that Dr. Fauci's single-minded concerns seemed to be avoiding the mortification of acknowledging success by doctors outside his agency. He would not be humiliated even if Fauci's decision cost the lives of tens of thousands of people with AIDS. Michael Callan, Larry Kramer, and the other AIDS activists left the NIH sit-down in a fierce rage. In June 1987, at a postmortem at Act Up's Circus-like New York City headquarters auditorium, where I often spoke on environmental issues during that era, Kramer lambasted Dr. Fauci for his pharma bias. Where are the drugs the government promised, he asked. After we got them millions of dollars for their experiments, what do we get? A $10,000 drug. What about all the other drugs out there? Congressional Confrontation, April 28, 1988 Dr. Fauci had given Kramer and the other activists the bums rush. He could not do the same with his congressional patrons. For years, my uncle, Senator Ted Kennedy, the chair of the Senate Health Committee, and Senator Lowell Weicker, who chaired Senate Appropriations, along with their allies in the House, California Congressman Henry Waxman, and Manhattan Congressman Ted Weiss had fought hand-to-hand combat with Ronald Reagan's tight-fisted budget director David Stockman to free up money for AIDS research. In 1980, Teddy became the first presidential candidate to actively campaign for gay rights. I stumped with him in San Francisco's Castro district when he shattered political taboos by barnstorming the gay bars shaking hands, and snapping photos. When the AIDS epidemic broke a year later, Teddy defied convention by hiring Terry Barron, the first openly gay HIV-infected Senate aide, to stage-manage the legislative battle against AIDS. Barron became the leading national advocate for the community-based clinical trials for remedies like Bactrim and aerosolized pentamidine to which Dr. Fauci had shown such hostility. Barron had hatched the idea for a community research initiative, CRI, with Teddy's close friend Matilde Krim of the activist group of Amphar and Martin Delaney of Project Inform. Their proposal was to create a parallel-track approval system that would allow community AIDS doctors to conduct clinical studies on the off-the-shelf drugs, that neither Pharma nor NIAID wanted to test. Delaney, who did not have AIDS but made his bones in the movement smuggling ribavirin from Mexico for the buyers' clubs, described the parallel track program as medically supervised guerrilla drug trials. Appealing to his friend Senator Orrin Hatch's Mormon sense of compassion toward the ill, Senator Kennedy had recruited the Utah conservative Republican to co-champion the AIDS issue. Independent-minded Connecticut Senator Lowell Weicker was another key ally. Those three most powerful senators, from three different political perspectives, worked in tandem and with Waxman and Weiss in the House. Their coordinated bipartisan efforts freed up hundreds of millions of dollars from the White House bean counters over the objections of powerful Christian conservatives who framed AIDS as God's just punishment for the homosexual lifestyle. For two years, Senator Kennedy and Bairn vainly urged Dr. Fauci to create a parallel track. Kennedy was frustrated by Dr. Fauci's reticence to listen to the HIV community. He considered it petty, cruel, and irresponsible that Dr. Fauci would not allow testing of the Buyers Club drugs. In a September 2007 interview, Dr. Fauci recalled the urgency that Teddy brought to the topic. He said that Kennedy urged him, we've got to have a clinical trial process that reaches out to the community. He was really the one who pushed very hard for the community program for clinical research on AIDS. That was one of his big agenda items. He wanted to get community access to clinical trials at the community level, not just limited to the trials run by drug companies and NIAID. By 1987, Dr. Fauci's political partners from all parties realized that Dr. Fauci's program was in shambles. Despite the millions from Congress, not a single AIDS drug had emerged from NIAID's pipeline. Senator Kennedy was beginning to suspect that Dr. Fauci was either inept or in the tank with pharma. Ronald Reagan was pushing to transfer the entire AIDS effort to more efficient private pharmaceutical companies. Dr. Fauci's failed predictions, organizational inadequacies, and obfuscations had steamed his Capitol Hill allies past their boiling points. In the spring of 1988, Dr. Fauci's congressional sponsors turned on him during a dramatic Capitol Hill confrontation. The April 28th hearing began with Representative Weiss, perhaps Dr. Fauci's most loyal sponsor, demanding that the NIAID chief explain his snail's progress. Dr. Fauci responded by whining that he had no budget to purchase lab space, computers, desks, and office supplies, or to hire new workers. The stunned Upper West Side congressman reminded Dr. Fauci That he had accepted $374 million from Congress for AIDS research. It seemed astonishing that those sums were insufficient to purchase clerical supplies and furniture. Oblivious that his lame excuses were only stoking his benefactor's scorching rage, Fauci moaned that his office items required separate budget columns not provided for in the massive congressional appropriation. In a barely controlled fury, Representative Waxman coldly asked Dr. Fauci why he never informed his congressional mentors of this logjam. That question provoked a cavalcade of vague and dissembling bellyaching, during which Dr. Fauci suggested obliquely that he had feared antagonizing the Reagan White House, which might have frowned on his cozy bonhomie with congressional Dems. Dr. Fauci's Fuzzy equivocation prompted Representative Waxman to darken visibly. He was furious, recounts Nussbaum. He practically levitated out of his chair. California Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi complained of Dr. Fauci's lackluster performance that, from our perspective, we have a burning building behind us, and we're coming to you all for water, and we're finding out that there's not somebody there to turn on the faucet. Pelosi next delivered the coup de grace as Nussbaum chronicled the explosive exchange. Representative Pelosi asked Dr. Fauci to assume that he had AIDS and found himself dying of pneumonia. You know the theory behind aerosol pentamidine to prevent pneumonia is strong. You know that the aerosol pentamidine was evaluated by the NIH as highly promising. You know that many studies in San Francisco recommend it routinely. And that it is available. Would you take aerosol pentamidine or would you wait for a study? For three years, Dr. Fauci had done everything in his power to deny aerosol pentamidine and its companion drug, Bactrim, to AIDS sufferers. But here's what he told the panel in 1988 If I were an individual patient, I would probably take aerosolized pentamidine if I already had a bout of pneumocystis. In fact, I might try, even before then, taking prophylactic Bactrim. These were two promising remedies that everyone on the panel and in the audience knew that Fauci had refused to either test or recommend. At that very moment, Dr. Fauci was denying tens of thousands of AIDS patients access to these life-saving remedies. Nussbaum describes the scene that followed. Silence. There was dead silence in room 2154 of the Rayburn House office building. People at the hearing just stared at Fauci and at one another. Here was the head of the NIH effort against AIDS publicly admitting that he personally would not follow the government's own guidelines and recommendations. Here was a top government scientist basically admitting that the government effort should be circumvented by the millions of people with AIDS. Here was Tony Fauci openly calling for the prophylaxis of Pneumocystis cariniae pneumonia, while his own clinical trial system did not have a single preventative drug in trial. It was a truly mind wrenching admission. Fauci himself was calling into question the very foundation of the government's entire research effort against AIDS. Thirty two years later, Dr. Fauci performed an encore of this kabuki dance during the early COVID crisis. On March 24, 2020, he answered a question from a journalist by admitting that if he became ill with COVID, he would take hydroxychloroquine as his remedy. Shortly thereafter, Dr. Fauci launched his aggressive campaign to deny HCQ and all early treatments to the rest of humanity. Dr. Fauci's 1988 Capitol Hill performance left all his former friends wanting a piece of him. Fauci was in deep trouble. These were his supporters, his financial mentors, his political protectors from an administration that was so aligned against the gay community and so ideologically antagonistic to the very existence of the NIH that it wanted pharma to privatize the whole shebang. Now... Weiss and Waxman were clearly gunning for him. Fauci realized that the entire hearing was a setup to show his personal shortcomings. Larry Kramer was thunderstruck. When he read about the NIH delays, the ineptitude, and perhaps the moral cowardice behind them, Kramer lost control. On May 31, 1988, Kramer wrote his famous open letter to Tony Fauci in The Village Voice. Kramer's diatribe compared NIAID to the fraternity of miscreants, delinquents, and dim-witted knuckleheads in the comedy film Animal House. He called Dr. Fauci an idiot and a murderer. He described Fauci sweating and squirming under Representative Ted Weiss's questioning. You were pummeled into admitting publicly what some have been claiming since you took over some three years ago. You have admitted that you are an incompetent idiot. Said Kramer, you expect us to buy this bullshit and feel sorry for you? You fucking son of a bitch of a dumb idiot. You have had $374 million, and you expect us to buy this garbage of excuses. Kramer accused Fauci of keeping his mouth shut for 36 months to pander to the Reagan White House. He asked Fauci, why did you keep quiet for so long, while people perished in the pandemic? It reminded him, he said, of Hitler's good lieutenant, Adolf Eichmann. He accused Fauci of being too cowardly and self-involved to speak up until forced to by a congressional committee. We lie down and die, and our bodies pile up higher and higher in hospitals and homes and hospices and streets and doorways. Referring to aerosol pentamidine, Kramer pointed out, We know and hear what is working on some of us somewhere. You couldn't care less about what we say. You won't answer our phone calls or letters or listen to anyone in our stricken community. What tragic pomposity. How many years ago did we tell you about aerosol pentamidine, Tony? That this stuff saves lives, and we discovered it ourselves. We came to you bearing this great news on a silver platter as a gift. Begging you, can we get it officially tested? Can we get it approved by you so that insurance companies and Medicaid will pay for it, as well as other drugs we beg you to test, as a routine treatment, and our patients going broke for medicine can get it cheaper? You monster. We tell you what the good drugs are. You don't test them, and you tell us to get them on the streets. You continue to pass down word from on high that you don't like this drug or that drug when you haven't even tested them. There are more AIDS patients dead because you didn't test drugs on them, Kramer said, than because you did. After the congressional hearing, everyone realized that the little emperor had no clothes. Dr. Fauci recognized that his political life was dangling by a thread. He had spent hundreds of millions of dollars building a drug testing network that didn't work. The Congress he had always been able to charm, double talk, and bamboozle had finally called fraud. His only hope for reputation and career salvation was a dramatic and unexpected change. He had been tarred with an incompetence brush by the very people who were his major supporters in the past. Only a complete change of strategy could resuscitate Tony Fauci's career. If he was to continue receiving financial support for AIDS research from Congress, if he was to continue being the head of NIAID, He had to reinvent himself. Dr. Fauci's Strategic Pivot Anthony Fauci needed a makeover, and this master of bureaucratic survival responded to his existential crisis with a breathtaking pivot. Suddenly, Dr. Fauci turned to embrace the AIDS activists he had previously reviled. In the summer of 1989, he accosted Larry Kramer on a Montreal street during an international AIDS conference, took him for a walk, effectively begged forgiveness, and proposed a working partnership. He began testing AIDS community drugs in parallel trials as Senator Kennedy and AMFAR had long requested. Dr. Fauci partnered with the AIDS doctors, the contemporary equivalents of frontline COVID-19 healers, Dr. Pierre Cory, Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. Richard Urso, and Dr. Ryan Cole, among others, giving them authority and millions of dollars to launch local community research initiative programs, CRIs, that allowed community AIDS clinics to test promising drugs outside the formal clinical trial programs dominated by Dr. Fauci's pharma PIs and to quickly win federal approvals. Fauci himself was now trying to build a system that consisted of greater access to drugs at a much earlier stage in the testing game, said Nussbaum. In a gesture of reconciliation with his biggest critics, Dr. Fauci named the parallel track program after Senator Kennedy's aide, Terry Barron, and he gave Larry Kramer a seat at the table. Most ironically, in light of his successful campaign to sabotage hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin during the COVID crisis, Dr. Fauci suddenly dropped his knee-jerk insistence that every drug needed randomized placebo-controlled testing prior to approval. In an extraordinary Voltfoss, he fiercely argued that if a drug looked promising for alleviating potentially lethal illness during pandemics, patients ought to be able to get access to it, even if it hadn't been through a double-blind placebo trial. In a brassy display of chutzpah, and brazenly hypocritical misdirection. He questioned the ethics of FDA regulators who insisted on placebo testing of beneficial drugs during a global pandemic when people were dying. He seemed to have forgotten that this was precisely his posture until just a few weeks before. Dr. Fauci accused the FDA of foot-dragging and overmanaging drug development. He openly attacked NIAID's sister agency, for its cruel and rigid insistence on randomized double-blind placebo testing for DHPG, a promising remedy for retinal herpes. In order to quiet the AIDS community, Tony Fauci even put AL721 into trials. Dr. Fauci became a vocal cheerleader of parallel-track approval of the retinue of popular buyers' club drugs. It doesn't make any sense, he said to deprive those people of the choice of whether or not they want to take a chance on a drug that has proven to be effective, as long as it doesn't interfere with clinical trials. As a scientist, I think it's an appropriate thing to do. Fauci transformed himself in the summer of 1989. He became an aggressive advocate for speeding up testing and drug approval for all life-threatening diseases, not just AIDS, recalls Nussbaum. Fauci adopted virtually the entire ACT UP program at once and as a whole. It was the kind of flip-flop that comes with a true religious conversion. It was so startling that it appeared as if Fauci had found the light, had an epiphany, and transformed himself into another being. This sudden flip-flop presaged Dr. Fauci's 2021 neck-wrenching switcheroo when he suddenly demanded an investigation of the Wuhan lab after energetically forestalling that inquiry for over a year. By the end of 1989, his insurrection against his own old orthodoxies and his merciless attacks on the beleaguered satraps at FDA had made Dr. Anthony Fauci into something of a hero to some in the HIV community. Industry to the Rescue Not everyone was happy. Dr. Fauci's U-turn had infuriated his industry PIs. Big Pharma's frontline troopers were in open revolt against his ballyhooed reforms. The CRI system was proving a disaster for the industry. The AIDS community's network of 200 CRI doctors was testing anti-AIDS drugs in parallel-track programs with low-cost and quick enrollments. The community doctors, Nussbaum explained in 1990, know more about treatment than do Dr. Fauci's ivory tower PIs hidden away from the realities of life and driven by careers that don't reward them for furthering the public health. So many AIDS patients were flocking to participate in CRI trials with caring doctors they knew and trusted that Dr. Fauci's traditional pharma PIs were having trouble recruiting volunteers to their clinical trials. The CRI was so successful that it began challenging the primacy of NIAID's traditional top-down university and hospital-based research. The PI network that formerly enjoyed an unchallenged monopoly on drug trials balked as the gay community's upstart doctors threatened their exclusive position at NIAID's billion-dollar research funding, teat. Big Pharma's PIs were to Dr. Fauci what the Praetorian Guard was to the Roman emperors. Fauci was at once their commander and their hostage. Ultimately, they exercised life-or-death power over him. It's worth recalling that the vast majority of Roman emperors died at the hands of their subordinates, with either assistance or acquiescence in their murders by their loyal Praetorians. His fifty years at NIH are resounding proof of Dr. Fauci's unerring survival skills. The political instincts that have made him history's longest-lived and highest-paid public health operatic must have informed him that antagonizing his Praetorians would eventually be fatal. He needed to make peace. Whether Dr. Fauci's brief conversion was ever heartfelt, it was necessarily short-lived. Fauci's managerial style and his deep reliance on his network of pharma PIs doomed parallel track from the outset. Nussbaum always doubted Dr. Fauci's authenticity. Fauci's conversion, he concluded, smacked of opportunism. Subsequent history, including the history we are living today supported Nussbaum's cynical assessment. AIDS activists afterward learned that at the same time Dr. Fauci was telling them and Senator Kennedy's office that he was finally testing AL-721, Teflon Tony was confiding to his pharma PIs that he had rigged the AL-721 studies to fail. I wanted to debunk it, he reassured them. Just as he would do with hydroxychloroquine during the COVID crisis 30 years later, he designed his AL-721 clinical trials in a way that would ensure their failure and thus discredit the unpatentable medicine. Dr. Fauci told the borough's welcome PIs who dominated his independent committee, let's put the thing into trial and get it over with once and for all. Nussbaum's verdict? If there was any chance for a fair test for AL-721, it wasn't going to come from Tony Fauci's clinical trials system. At first, his devious plan backfired. Instead of debunking AL-721, the NIAID study confirmed that AL-721 stopped viral replication. When those promising results began emerging, Dr. Fauci and his PIs canceled the trial, making sure the AL-721 never went to Phase 2. Dr. Fauci told skeptical activists that he could not get any volunteers to enroll in the study. In 2021, he would invoke the same BUNCO to kill NIAID's ivermectin trials. Around the same time, activists realized that Dr. Fauci's vows to test aerosol pentamidine which he admitted before Congress was effective, were a subterfuge. Dr. Fauci opened clinical trials for aerosol pentamidine, but again claimed disingenuously that he couldn't populate them. Dr. Fauci's sandbagging finally prompted frustrated HIV activists to finance and conduct their own trial of aerosol pentamidine. Completed in 1990, That study demonstrated the drug's clear effectiveness against PCP. The data had not been generated out of Tony Fauci's multi million dollar drug testing system, Callan recalled. That, Fauci's system, has not been able to enroll a single person in its trials of aerosol pentamidine. The HIV community and community doctors generated the data. A private company, Lifomed, Funded the study. Said Nussbaum, the community has rolled up its sleeves and done an end run around federal incompetence and indifference. Nussbaum points out that even at the height of Dr. Fauci's conversion, NIAID continued to ignore hundreds of other effective drugs for opportunistic diseases because PIs have their own scientific agenda, which is not necessarily the same as the country's. Dr. Fauci's whole charade ended the moment the FDA approved AZT. By then, Dr. Fauci had rigged the key committees that controlled drug approvals at NIH and FDA by stacking them with academic and industry scientists and doctors from his PI system. Scientists who made their entire careers in AZT sat on committees voting on potential commercial competitors scientists who have had financial dealings with Burroughs Welcome or other pharmaceutical companies have come to dominate the government's entire clinical trials network. While they actively stymied clinical trials for aerosolized pentamidine and AL721, Dr. Fauci's insider's cabal greased the skids, allowing Burroughs Welcome to skip animal testing and to proceed directly to human trials. This omission was unprecedented in the history of chemotherapy drugs, but again foreshadowed the decision to allow the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine to proceed to human testing without completing the usual panel of safety testing in animal models. Government researchers had thoroughly assessed AZT's frightening toxicity, including its lethal effects on rodents after short-term exposures with minuscule doses. Neither NIAID nor Burroughs Wellcome ever completed any long-term animal study. Burroughs Wellcome financed Dr. Fauci's fast-tracked human trials, fragmenting their study groups in 12 cities into small cohorts, making safety signals difficult to detect. In 1987, Dr. Fauci's team declared the human study a success and terminated it after four months of a proposed six-month study, a record-setting speed for chemotherapy approval. That four-month observation period was far too short for researchers to detect side effects that would occur in patients taking AZT for years or even a lifetime. But Dr. Fauci argued that his decision to abort the study was the only ethical choice. After 16 weeks, 19 trial subjects in the inactive placebo group and only one participant from the AZT group had died, an outcome that could be hailed as an extraordinary 95% efficacy. Dr. Fauci said that those results proved AZT safe and effective against AIDS. Even more importantly for Burroughs' welcome shareholders, Dr. Fauci cleared AZT for use on healthy HIV positive people, meaning people with no symptoms. Following those brief clinical trials, FDA granted AZT fast tracked emergency use approval in March 1987. A moment of triumph. For Dr. Fauci, the FDA licensure was a moment for exaltation. After years of humiliation and failure with his critics pounding him against the ropes, he finally had something to show. A double-blind, placebo-controlled study of 3,200 people, which allegedly showed that AIDS patients receiving AZT survived at rates exponentially higher than those denied the treatment. Dr. Fauci now had a product that validated his clinical trial system. At this first whiff of AZT's success, even before his AZT study was published, the young technocrat seized the moment to do what he always did best. He called a press conference. Two years later, Dr. Fauci would reminisce about those halcyon days. When I first got involved in AIDS research, I was reluctant to deal with the press. I thought it was not dignified. There is, in fact, little evidence of that reticence in the public record. From the outset, Tony Fauci seemed almost desperate for such indignities. Dr. Fauci launched his media blitz with an unprecedented action. At 10 o'clock in the morning, following his evening receipt of the initial study results, Dr. Fauci began personally calling key journalists to announce his triumph. No director of an NIH institute had ever contacted the press like that, says Nussbaum. Traditionally, the NIH director himself made major announcements, but Dr. Fauci was apparently unwilling to share the glory with his nominal boss, NIH Director James Weingarten, or with HHS Secretary Otis Bowen. In making his proclamation, Dr. Fauci employed the gimmick that he watched Robert Gallo pioneer during his premature announcement of Gallo's study linking HIV to AIDS. That announcement had shattered another tradition. Historically, agencies didn't announce the results of clinical trials until the data were peer-reviewed and published so that journalists and the scientific community could read the study and reach their own conclusion about what the science said. Gallo had trailblazed the technique of science by press release four years earlier when he had staged an HHS press event to announce that the probable cause of AIDS had been found, a retrovirus that would later be named the Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV. The press reported Gallo's discovery as scientific fact, even though Gallo had not published a peer-reviewed paper supporting his enormously consequential assertion. Here was a useful innovation that allowed regulatory officials to craft and control the public narrative from inception. The science was what the regulators declared it to be. There could be no opportunity for journalists to read the ambiguous data, consider contrary expert opinion, or second-guess official pronouncements. Dr. Fauci made himself the virtuoso of this technique, displaying it at its apogee during his April 28, 2020 announcement of remdesivir's miraculous performance during NIAID's rigged and fraud-tainted clinical trials while seated on an Oval Office couch beside President Trump. He had no peer-reviewed or published study, no authentic placebo trial, no data, and not even a handout for the press. With this vague hearsay claim, he forced through emergency use authorization for his darling drug and sold Gilead's entire inventory to the president without publishing a word or ever leaving the sofa. Under Dr. Fauci's leadership, this practice would become a routine vehicle for extreme abuse in the COVID 19 era, when vaccine companies habitually disclosed cherry picked highlights of their clinical trials in press releases weeks before publishing far less bullish study results. Those tactics drew criticism as pump-and-dump enterprises, with company executives simultaneously unloading stock timed with deceptive announcements that drove up share prices. At least one case, Dr. Fauci's Moderna vaccine, prompted a federal securities investigation. Using the same extravagant language he would later apply to remdesivir, Dr. Fauci boasted to reporters that his trial had produced clear-cut evidence that AZT saved lives. Any reporter who wanted to cover the story for the evening news had to take his word for it, and then, as now, some people simply couldn't conceive that Anthony Fauci would lie or exaggerate. Dr. Fauci Giddily declared that his agency would recommend AZT not only for individuals with full-blown AIDS, but for asymptomatic people who had tested positive for HIV but showed no signs of AIDS. He never mentioned that AZT cost $10,000 for annual treatment, only that Burroughs Welcome would sell it for $500 a bottle. The FDA approval meant the taxpayers would subsidize AZT's costs. Burroughs Welcomes shares soared 45% on Dr. Fauci's announcement, adding £1.4 billion to the company's UK stock market value in one day. The company's CEO predicted that AZT profits would bring in over $2 billion per year. The PIs had handed NIAID its first successful drug trial. Dr. Fauci was now in the clear and he knew that the P.I.s had pulled his chestnuts from the fire. Not only had they given him a blockbuster AIDS drug, they had also built him a tried-and-tested system for producing future drug approvals. He no longer needed to pander to the C.R.I. doctors. Dr. Fauci wasted no time in putting an end to his parallel-track charade. When Dr. Fauci abandoned the C.R.I. system, NIAID just as quickly lost its brief interest in patient care or in testing repurposed new drugs against the opportunistic infections that killed people with AIDS. NIAID went back to its comfortable niche, nurturing pharmaceutical blockbusters. It was the same old story, recounts Nussbaum. Nothing had changed for years. There was only one problem. Dr. Fauci's entire clinical trial for AZT had been an elaborate fraud. A Moment of Truth, Uncovering the Fraud In July 1987, the New England Journal of Medicine finally published Burroughs Wellcome's official report on the Phase II AZT trials, the so-called Fischl study, which was the basis of the FDA's approval of AZT. Outside scientists finally had the chance to scrutinize the study's details for the first time. Many had earlier expressed shock at its abbreviated duration, but now they began to uncover evidence of fatal methodological flaws, some attributable to confirmation bias, but others clearly the product of corruption and deliberate falsification. Within days, reporters, researchers, and scientists began lobbying aspersions on Dr. Fauci's pollyanna and self-serving interpretation of the data. European scientists complained that NIAID's raw data showed no benefit of reducing symptoms, a finding that threatened Glaxo's biggest anticipated profit pool. The Swiss newspaper Weltwock termed his AZT trials a gigantic botch-up. Investigative journalist and market research analyst John Lauritsen, who had covered the AIDS crisis since 1985, became the first intrepid journalist to critically analyze the details of the AZT trials. When he saw the NEJM reports, he quickly realized that the research was invalid. In his first AZT article, AZT on Trial, October 19, 1987, he wrote, The description of methodology was incomplete and incoherent. Not a single table was acceptable according to statistical standards. Indeed, not a single table made sense. In particular, the first report, On Efficacy, was marred by contradictions, illogic, and special pleading. He telephoned the nominal authors of the report, Dr. Margaret Fischel and Douglas Richmond, and spoke to each for half an hour. Neither one of them could explain the tables and the reports that they themselves had allegedly written. They could only say that he should call Burroughs welcome for answers to his questions. The New York native published Lauritsen's reports beginning in 1987. These reports later appeared in two books, Poison by Prescription, The AZT Story, poison, 1990, and the AIDS war, propaganda, profiteering, and genocide from the medical industrial complex, TAW, 1993. Eighteen months after AZT's approval, FDA conducted its own investigation of the study. For many months, the FDA, cowering before Fauci's bullying, kept its damning reports secret. The most shocking revelations about Dr. Fauci's systemic conduct would emerge after Lauritsen finally obtained some 500 pages from the FDA investigators' trove of documents using the Freedom of Information Act. Those papers clearly demonstrated that the Fauci-Burroughs Welcome research teams had engaged in widespread data tampering, which some have viewed rose to the level of homicidal criminality. These documents showed that the double-blind, placebo-controlled trials had become unblinded almost immediately, which alone rendered them invalid. Internal FDA communications with the research team revealed rampant falsification of data, sloppiness, and departure from accepted procedures. In one of the Freedom of Information Act FOIA documents, Harvey Chernov, the FDA analyst who reviewed the pharmacology data, recommended that AZT should not be approved. Chernoff noted many serious toxicities of AZT, especially its effect on the blood. Although the dose varied, anemia was noted in all species, including man, in which the drug has been tested. Chernoff further noted that AZT is likely to cause cancer. AZT induces a positive response in the cell transformation assay and is therefore presumed to be a potential carcinogen. The Phase two trials were supposed to last for 24 weeks, but Welcome and Dr. Fauci aborted them at the halfway point. The investigators claimed that AZT was miraculously prolonging the lives of those taking it. Lauritsen analyzed the mortality data and concluded that they were certainly false. Although few patients finished the full 24 weeks of treatment, and two dozen lasted less than four weeks on the drug, the investigators analyzed the skimpy data anyway, using bizarre statistical projections to forecast the probability of a patient's experiencing various opportunistic infections if the trials had continued as planned. Lauritsen scathingly comments, This is analogous to estimating the probability of developing arthritis by the age of 70 using a sample in which only a few people had reached this age and in which some were still teenagers. Most seriously, FDA investigators found a great many instances of cheating in the Boston Center where they began their review. Dr. Fauci's decision to terminate the trials prevented the inspectors from investigating the other 11 centers which were, presumably, just as dreadful as Boston. After agonizing over whether to exclude data from the delinquent Boston Center or from patients with protocol violations, the FDA decided to exclude nothing. False data were retained. Garbage was thrown in with the good stuff. The FDA argued that if all the false data were excluded, there would be an insufficient number of patients left to complete the trials. Lauritsen pointed out that FDA's knowing use of false data constituted fraud. In 1991, four years later, Lauritsen filed a Freedom of Information request asking for various FDA documents pertaining to the Phase II AZT trials. Most importantly, the Establishment Inspection Report on the Boston Center written by FDA investigator Patricia Spitzig. After months of lies, evasions, and obstructions from the FDA, a courageous female FDA whistleblower breached all the stonewalling and saw to it that Lauritsen got the Spitzig report. It was a bombshell. As it turned out, the Boston Principal Investigators, PIs, cheated on almost every patient The borough's welcome PIs had quickly realized that AZT was so reliably deadly that they were hard-pressed to keep the trial recruits alive for the full six-month study. The Boston team solved this dilemma by lying about the length of time patients were in the trials. The company incentivized this sort of fraud by paying its PIs according to how many months they kept the AZT trial subjects alive. Simply put, says Lauritsen, the doctors received a great deal more money from longer-term enrollments. Pharma PIs know that their careers and paychecks depend on their ability to consistently produce study outcomes that will win FDA approval for the subject drug. Such perverse incentives naturally drive research bias, confirmation bias, data tampering, strategic laziness, and deliberate falsification and cheating. PIs routinely covered up adverse events, violated protocols, falsely reported AZT patients as being placebo patients, and lost control of the test product. FDA based its AZT approval on case report forms, CRFs, filed by Burroughs Welcome PIs, who each had compelling financial and career inducements to downplay injuries to achieve a successful trial. However. There were also reams of shocking information in the medical records of private physicians, hospitals, and the diaries of patients that contradicted the crisis. In virtually every patient, the FDA's Spitzig found serious discrepancies between the medical records and what the PIs had entered on their CRFs. The rules of the trials clearly stated that the PIs must record all adverse reactions on their CRFs and report immediately to the FDA. The Boston PIs did neither. The FDA documents showed that the PIs knew very well which patients were on AZT and which on placebo, that they were skewing safety results in AZT's favor to give advantage to the AZT participants. Researchers began by placing the sickest patients in the placebo group, The researchers then bent over backward to coddle the group that took AZT, giving them more supportive medical services than the placebo subjects. For example, individuals taking AZT during the four-month study received six times more blood transfusions than the placebo group. Of those who got AZT, all suffered from its unspeakable toxicity. A number of them would very definitely have died from anemia, had the PIs not given the blood transfusions to keep them alive, says Lauritsen. AZT causes anemia in every animal species ever studied, including human beings. In his book, Poisoned by Prescription, Lauritsen explains how patients taking AZT became anemic and suffered low white blood cell counts accompanied by vomiting. FDA's documents showed that everyone in the AZT group suffered severe toxicities and anemia, yet NIAID's official report listed no adverse effects among AZT recipients. Some of the AZT patients suffered adverse reactions so deadly that they needed multiple blood transfusions just to keep them alive. Dr. Fauci's crooked researchers pumped these individuals with regular blood transfusions and then neglected to record their multiplicity of health problems. In the AZT group, 30 patients, over half the total, clung to life until the end of the study, only with help from multiple blood transfusions. In each case, the Boston PIs checked no adverse reactions on the CRFs. Some 20% received multiple transfusions. In the placebo group, on the other hand, only five patients receive transfusions. What happens when you get a blood transfusion, asks noted AIDS researcher and author, Dr. Robert E. Wilner, M.D., Ph.D. You look better, you feel better, and you live a little bit longer. But the most important question and lesson from all of this, you must ask the question, why do those on AZT need six times more transfusions in a four-month period than the individuals on the placebo because you're dealing with a killer drug. Many of the patients would have died from the toxicities of AZT if they had not been given emergency blood transfusions, reports Lauritsen. This is a serious adverse effect. That means literally that they would have died from the poison. And yet the case report forms that showed up eventually would report No adverse effects. I mean, this is a type of dishonesty. It's hard to go any further than that. Dr. Wilner, who died in 1995, accused Dr. Fauci of using transfusions and other artifices to systematically conceal AZT's horrendous toxicity. What do we have to say about the National Institutes of Health? When a private independent laboratory found AZT to be 1,000 times more toxic than the laboratory of the NIH, we can understand a 5% error in a laboratory, even a 10% error, but a 10,000% error or a 100,000% error? That's fraud. One typically appalling item in Spitzig's report concerned patient 1009 who was already taking AZT and was therefore ineligible to participate in the clinical trial. The Boston PIs nevertheless illegally entered him in the study and assigned him to the placebo group, although he never stopped taking AZT. He suffered typical AZT toxicities, including severe headaches and anemia, dropped out of the study after less than a month, and died two months later. The P.I.s counted him as a death in the placebo group. Lauritsen wrote, Further comment would be superfluous. If this is not fraud, the word has no meaning. Even in that innocent era, the United States' mainstream media heavily censored journalistic criticism of Dr. Fauci and the corruption in the AZT studies. Most Americans were therefore unaware of any dissent from the AIDS orthodoxy. This was less true in Europe and the UK. On February 12, 1992, Channel 4 Television in London broadcast a documentary, AZT, Cause for Concern. Produced by Meditel, the film described the material from the FOIA documents, exposed the crooked AZT trials as rank fraud, and chronicled the terrible toxicities of the drug. The next day, the charity, Wellcome Foundation, divested itself of most of its stock in Wellcome Pharmaceuticals, the parent company of Burroughs Wellcome, the manufacturer of AZT. Burroughs Wellcome stocks plunged, and the company suffered a series of hostile takeovers by Smith-Kline Beecham and then by Glaxo. Millions around the world viewed the UK documentary, but neither it nor any of the medical aid's critical documentaries have ever been broadcast in the U.S. AZT is the most toxic drug ever approved for long-term use. Molecular biologist Professor Peter Duisberg has explained AZT's mechanism of action. It is a random terminator of DNA synthesis, the life process itself. Dr. Joseph Sonaben stated simply, AZT is incompatible with life. On January twenty seventh, 1988, NBC News broke the censorship blockade to broadcast the first of reporter Perry Peltz's three-part exposé on the AZT official trial. Peltz reported additional evidence of widespread tampering with the rules and the pervasive cheating, which she discovered had started on day one. Peltz learned that Fauci's claim that the study was double-blind was a wholesale canard and reported that most volunteers knew who was on the drug and who wasn't. Since everyone was desperate for the miracle drug, the volunteers on AZT admitted to sharing their drug with placebo group members. This practice assured that researchers would get no clean results from either cohort. Furthermore, Peltz learned both placebo and study subjects were taking other drug regimens they obtained by purchasing remedies from buyers' clubs. Peltz was practicing understatement when she branded NIAID's AZT experiments as seriously flawed. Dr. Fauci loves the media spotlight, but only when the pitcher is throwing softballs. Peltz closed her report with a pointed comment. When preparing this report, we repeatedly tried to interview Dr. Anthony Fauci at the National Institutes of Health but both Dr. Fauci and Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Frank Young declined our request for interviews. When Lauritsen saw the NBC broadcast, he commented, Welcome to the club, Perry. Fauci also refused to speak to the BBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation Radio, Channel 4 Television London, Italian Television, The New Scientist, and Jack Anderson. All these outlets had expressed skepticism about the official report. Of course, Dr. Fauci remained a constant presence on the more obeisant media outlets. Despite years of ineptitude and catastrophe, he has managed to survive by cultivating credulous journalists who do not ask critical questions and give him free rein to broadcast self-serving propaganda. Furthermore, he had already become a master at persuading media outlets against giving platforms to his critics a technique that served him well in 2020 and 2021. By September of 2021, Dr. Fauci's power to muzzle his critics had achieved a mastery over free expression unprecedented in human history. That month, with a single phrase, Dr. Fauci silenced pop icon Nicki Minaj after she questioned whether COVID vaccines might be causing problems involving testicular swelling. When CNN's Jake Tapper asked him about Minaj's claim, Dr. Fauci simply declared, the answer to that, Jake, is a resounding no. As usual, he cited no study to support this assertion. The vaccine manufacturers acknowledge that the products are not tested for effects on fertility. Nevertheless, based upon Dr. Fauci's word alone, Twitter immediately evicted Minaj from its platform, censoring her communication with her 22 million followers. Pharma's obedient attack dogs, CNN, CBS, and NBC, rushed on to the dog pile to defame and discredit the rapper and to assure the public that Minaj was wrong. Dr. Fauci, after all, had spoken. On February 19, 1988, Dr. Fauci appeared with hosts Charles Gibson and Joan London on ABC's flagship television program, Good Morning America. His appearance was part of a propaganda blitz of the friendly media platforms to resurrect himself and AZT from the all-out assault by scientists and independent reporters like Lauritsen and Peltz. Initially, GMA invited Dr. Fauci's most vocal and credible nemesis, perhaps the world's leading virologist, Berkeley professor Dr. Peter Duisburg to appear on its show. Duisburg, who had at that date received more NIH grants than any other scientist, was enraging his benefactor agency by claiming that AZT was not just worthless, it was killing more people than AIDS. Duisburg had flown across the country to appear. On the evening before his scheduled appearance, GMA's producer called Dr. Duisberg in his Manhattan hotel room to inform him that the show had been canceled. The following morning, Duisberg awoke to watch Dr. Fauci promoting AZT and defending his study on GMA unchallenged. This was by then a common motif for Dr. Fauci, his gift at strong-arming obsequious, slavish, credulous reporters to silence critics and to shield him from debate. The fawning GMA hosts asked Dr. Fauci why only one drug, AZT, had been made available. He replied, The reason why only one drug has been made available, AZT, is because it's the only drug that has been shown in scientifically controlled trials to be safe and effective. The sycophantic GMA team characteristically accepted Dr. Fauci's statement as gospel. Almost all of Dr. Fauci's claims in that broadcast were lies. Lauritsen points out that this brief statement contains several outstanding falsehoods. First, there have been no scientifically controlled trials of AZT. To refer to the FDA-conducted AZT trials as scientifically controlled is equivalent to referring to garbage as la haute cuisine. Second. AZT is not safe. It is a highly toxic drug. The FDA analyst who reviewed the toxicology data on AZT recommended that it should not be approved. Third, AZT is not known objectively to be effective for anything except perhaps for destroying bone marrow. Only 33 years later did Dr. Fauci finally concede that AZT's performance in his Ballyhooed clinical trials, ostensibly saving lives at a 19-to-1 ratio, was actually less than stellar. Ironically, his delayed confession arrived just as Dr. Fauci was minting a new whopper. In May 2020, during the White House meeting where he pronounced the miraculous efficacy of Gilead's antiviral remdesivir, another beneficiary of Dr. Fauci's manipulations, He admitted, the first randomized placebo-controlled trial with AZT turned out to give an effect that was modest. That's not what he said at the time. In 1987, he claimed that AZT was 95% effective. 19 had died in the placebo group and only 1 in the AZT group. In 2020, based on equally flimsy and contrived evidence, he made similar claims for his lethal remedy, remdesivir, and his dubious Moderna vaccine. The media's reportage of AZT in the late 1980s almost universally lamented the cruelty of AZT's astronomical costs that ranged from 8000 to $12,000, not counting the cost of the required blood transfusions when patients' platelets plummeted. Anthony Fauci solved this problem by making AZT standard of care for otherwise healthy people with no AIDS symptoms who nevertheless were diagnosed with HIV via PCR tests. In 1989, when Dr. Fauci recommended universal testing, the LA Times dutifully gushed that AZT could benefit about 600,000 of the estimated 1.5 million HIV-positive people in the country. Dr. Fauci promised these healthy Americans that taking AZT could delay their inevitable death sentences and would have the broadest impact of any of the therapeutic advances shown in recent years to prolong the lives of patients with AIDS or HIV infection. The New York Times' Philip J. Hiltz uncritically reported that everyone should now get tested. Dr. Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said that now people who are at risk for AIDS, even if they have absolutely no symptoms, it behooves them to get themselves tested. The resultant flood of additional customers clamoring for the drug significantly expanded the AZT market, allowing Burroughs' welcome, now GlaxoSmithKline, to lower per-unit costs. No mainstream media outlet told the public about the behind-closed-doors meetings, where FDA greenlighted Dr. Fauci's sketchy new initiative. The meeting's transcripts reveal the deep anxieties of the FDA panelists who worried that they had no idea if AZT might actually help healthy people or whether it may, perhaps, kill them. Among all the American journalists covering the AIDS beat, only Celia Farber showed curiosity about the particulars of this milestone debate. In 1989, she quoted from the FDA transcript in an article titled Sins of Omission in SPIN. Everybody was worried about this one. To approve AZT, said Ellen Cooper, an FDA director, would represent a significant and potentially dangerous departure from our normal toxicology requirements. One doctor on the panel, Calvin Kunin, summed up their dilemma. On the one hand, he said, to deny a drug which decreases mortality in a population such as this would be inappropriate. On the other hand, To use this drug widely for areas where efficacy has not been demonstrated with a potentially toxic agent might be disastrous. We do not know what will happen a year from now, said panel chairman Dr. Itzhak Brook. The data is just too premature, and the statistics are not really well done. The drug could actually be detrimental. A little later, he said he was also struck by the facts that AZT does not stop deaths. Even those who were switched to AZT still kept dying. I agree with you, answered another panel member. There are so many unknowns. Once the drug is approved, there is no telling how it could be abused. There's no going back. By invoking the people are dying argument to rush through AZT's Licensing for Healthy Americans, the FDA's drug approval process was decimated. Farber told me the idea that complying with the normal safeguards of the regulatory process and taking time to prudently study a drug for safety or efficacy was artfully conflated with murder. In that sense, an unbroken devolution of FDA's regulatory function leads from AZT to the fraud-fueled emergency use approvals of remdesivir and the Moderna mRNA vaccine during the COVID pandemic. The death blow to FDA's safety function was AZT, says Farber. After that, any potentially deadly disease became an excuse for curtailing clinical trials. Death by medication was normalized as an inherent part of progress. All those poisoned Americans were just unfortunate casualties in little Napoleon's noble war against the germs. Dr. Fauci's fraud persuaded hundreds of thousands of people to take AZT. For many of them, it was a lethal choice. In 1987, AZT became the aid's therapy, even though in the recommended dosage of 1,500 milligrams a day it was absolutely fatal. Throughout the 1980s, the average lifespan of a patient on AZT was four years. The life expectancy only began to increase in 1990, when the FDA lowered the recommended dosages from 1,200 milligrams a day to 600. The quality of life on AZT was universally pretty miserable. Many credible scientists argued that AZT was killing more people than AIDS. Lortzen estimated that AZT killed 330,000 gay men between 1987 and 2019. Many of the dead were perfectly healthy before beginning the AIDS regimen. Absent AZT, Lordson said, the vast majority of those men would not have died. Fast-Track Template AZT's record-setting race to approval did not stand for long. By 1991, Dr. Fauci had effectively abandoned testing low-profit repurposed drugs in the parallel-track CRI program. But he used a parallel-track to open a loophole in the FDA drug approval system a loophole large enough to drive through truckloads of pharma's new high-profit patented antivirals. Using CRI's relaxed rules, Dr. Fauci and his pharma partners shattered a series of new speed records at FDA. Still smarting from the public roasting Dr. Fauci had administered to them, bedraggled and bullied FDA officials, lowered agency standards, to green-light Dr. Fauci's dark pharmacopoeia of deadly chemotherapy drugs with minimal safety testing. That year, exploiting the regulatory breach he had created with CRI's fast-track system, Dr. Fauci waved through another DNA-chain antiretroviral terminator drug to quick approval allowing it to skip the double-blind placebo testing he had previously declared indispensable. NIH had developed and patented didanosine before licensing it to Bristol-Myers Squibb. Didanosine won FDA approval without even a pretense of a placebo-controlled study. The drug had so many debilitating and lethal side effects that FDA— in an uncharacteristic act of civil disobedience against NIAID's diminutive dictator, issued a black box warning. Nevertheless, desperate HIV-infected Americans rushed like doomed lemmings to take the drug. In 2010, FDA issued a statement that didanosine can cause potentially a fatal liver disease called non-serotic portal hypertension. Even with its demonstrated toxicity, Dr. Fauci used CRI parallel track process to bypass the usual controls to win approval for use of didanosine in pregnant mothers who test positive for HIV. A 2019 study found that didanosine accounted for 16% of prescriptions for infected mothers and 30% of the cancers in their children. In 1996, Dr. Fauci used his expedited fast-track to break another record by winning FDA approval for Merck's HIV antiviral Crixivan. This time it took only six weeks. Dr. Fauci achieved that feat by allowing Merck to run Crixivan through a skeleton CRI process on a tiny cohort of 97 volunteers in three groups, thereby winning the swiftest approval in history, 42 days. That approval prompted open revolt by the AIDS community, which felt betrayed when Merck hiked up the price of the drug. Activists led by the Treatment Action Group condemned Merck's misuse of the CRI exemptions to secure approval for its deadly and ineffective drug. In 2016, Dr. Fauci boasted that his efforts had led to the approval of some 30 new drugs to treat HIV-AIDS. Dr. Fauci called this extraordinary accomplishment one of the most important transformative discoveries in biological sciences. These drugs generated billions of dollars in revenue for drug makers. In 2000, Global revenue from AIDS remedies was $4 billion. By 2004, it jumped to $6.6 billion. In 2010, AIDS drugs cracked the $9 billion mark for pharmaceutical giants and topped $30 billion in 2020. On the surface of AIDS, what the public sees is a benevolent exterior devoted to saving lives of originally mostly gay men in the West, then, since they shifted the narrative, primarily Africans. A global apparatus now worth over two trillion dollars and composed of more NGOs, more organizations than anybody could count, obliterates all dissent, all real language, history, and truth, says Celia Farber, author of Serious Adverse Events, An Uncensored History of AIDS. It's a beast system, and Fauci created it. It's not capitalism at all. It detests merit, standards, and all the values of Western civilization. It uses the violence of the woke economy to recast lies as truth and to proudly crush and block any and all dissenting voices. It does this always in the name of saving lives. Only now with COVID, Are Americans able to see Fauci's cold, ruthless face behind the mask? Americans have tried to follow what that man has said for a year and a half now, and we who have been dealing with him for so long, we feel like, Welcome to our nightmare. Nothing, he says, makes sense, yet nobody stands over him to rein him in. Tower of Babel. Americans are trying to make him into a benign figure, but more and more they feel a sinking feeling. Is he a madman? Why can't we understand what he is actually saying, what he means? This is very unsettling when people are as afraid as people are now since COVID. Aftermath A key and enduring legacy of the AZT battle was Dr. Fauci's emergence as the alpha wolf of HHS. His enormous budget, and multiplying contacts on Capitol Hill, the White House, and the medical industry, thereafter allowed him to influence or ignore a succession of politically appointed HHS directors and to bully, manipulate, and dominate HHS's other sister agencies, most notably FDA. In his biography of Dr. Fauci, author Terry Michael described the drug approval system that NIAID nurtured post azt what has evolved into the hiv aids industry is supported by a knowledge monopoly comprised of federal government bureaucratic authorities led by dr anthony fauci who hands out billions of dollars in research grants who collude with crony capitalists from international pharmaceutical cartels who distribute billions to aids advocacy non-profits and whose official stories are communicated to the public by a science-illiterate mass media. With few exceptions, it is a media populated by journalists who don't even attempt to understand the science. These journalistic interpreters of those they label scientists are pawns in the hands of authorities in long-sleeved white laboratory coats. That chief authority about HIV-AIDS, Dr. Fauci, has tightly held the purse strings on all HIV-AIDS research since he was appointed head of the NIAID in November 1984. As Michael suggests, the unique skill sets that allowed Dr. Fauci's extraordinary longevity and continuing public credibility, despite his miserable record of preventing and managing chronic and infectious disease, were his gifts for weaponizing media relationships, magically deploying journalists to promote his self-serving narratives, and relentlessly silence dissent. Dissent was effectively shut down in mass-mediated public discourse, Michaels observes, and it was scrubbed from peer-reviewed science and medical journals, which reap significant revenue from drug company advertisements for antiretroviral drugs. Journal revenue is also derived from expensive annual subscriptions purchased with funds from tens of thousands of HIV AIDS related grants funded by U.S. taxpayers, if approved by Anthony Fauci. Template His success at using the AIDS crisis to bring a deadly, toxic, and ineffective AIDS drug to market taught Dr. Fauci some key career lessons that he would faithfully repeat again and again and again throughout his long regime. During his battle to win FDA approval for AZT, Dr. Fauci pioneered the strategies upon which he would build his career and then showcase for the world during the COVID epidemic. These include Pumping up pandemic fears to lay the groundwork for larger budgets and greater powers. Incriminating an elusive pathogen. Fanning hysteria by exaggerating disease transmissibility. Periodically stoking waning fear levels by warning of mutant superstrains and future surges. Suggesting substantial changes in how people live, ostensibly to save their lives keeping the public and politicians engaged through confusing and contradictory pronouncements, using faulty PCR and antibody tests, and manipulating epidemiology to inflate non-verifiable case and death numbers to maximize the perception of an imminent calamity, ignoring and dismissing effective off-the-shelf therapeutic remedies, directing energy and money, toward profitable new patented drugs and vaccines, championing dangerous and ineffective drugs originating in government laboratories as the only winning solution to end the pandemic, funding and orchestrating confirmation-biased research to validate his chosen remedy, partnering with large pharmaceutical companies and giving his partners advantages in the race for approval, allowing preferred companies to skip key testing metrics, curtailing clinical trials to conceal severe safety and efficacy problems, sabotaging, discrediting, and sweeping aside more effective therapies, antiretrovirals, off-the-shelf remedies, and non-patentable medicines that might compete with his new patented antiretrovirals and vaccines. Subjecting competitive products to efficacy and safety studies that are designed to fail. Allowing thousands of sick patients to suffer and die by denying them access to demonstrably effective competitive remedies by publicly protesting the existing remedies were not subject to randomized placebo testing. Controlling the key independent committees DSMB, VRBPAC, ACIP that approve and mandate new drugs by populating them with his own hand-picked PIs, presenting these agencies as independent and trustworthy experts, using the Emergency Use Authorization to fast-track the concoctions through a rigged approval process to market, using official government propaganda to market his concoctions employing science by press release to control narratives, making exaggerated claims for the efficacy of his products, using pervious and ineffective post-marketing surveillance systems to conceal mass injuries and deaths from the public, papering over all these testing deficiencies by crafting and promoting enduring narratives about the benefits, safety, and efficacy citing leading experts to promote hypotheses that are practically never scientifically verified with peer-reviewed studies or appropriate controls, allowing pharmaceutical companies to charge Medicare, government programs, and insurance companies inflated prices bearing no relationships to cost, ensuring that research funding is restricted to projects supporting the dogma, excluding research into alternative hypotheses, preventing debate and censoring dissenting voices in popular media, social media, and scientific publications, and promising ultimate salvation with vaccines. In addition, Dr. Fauci honed the skill of always speaking with authority, even when making contradictory assertions with no scientific basis to rapidly reshape all government pronouncements into dogma, efficiently perpetuated in a quasi-religious manner by the media. By repeatedly using these formulas for 50 years, Fauci directed his agency away from its core responsibility, basic research on infectious, allergic, and autoimmune diseases that have become epidemic since he took over NIAID and transformed his agency into a profit-making appendage for itself and for Big Pharma. Mark Twain once observed that it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. AIDS activist Christine Majori lamented this feature of human gullibility when she assessed the mendacious 50-year travesty of corrupted public health research that Tony Fauci put in motion during the 1984 AIDS crisis. Commercial interests are definitely part of the problem here, and it's also our collective inability or challenge to say, all this time, all these years, all these lives, all these billions and billions of dollars, can we just stop a second and go back to the very beginning and make sure we got this right? I mean, that is so hard to do. People don't even know it's a lie. It's not so much a lie as business as usual. Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgements and notes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this audiobook.